Hey, Climate Conscious listeners, this is Greg Dalton. You're listening to the C1 Review, a podcast presenting highlights from some of our past shows. You can join the conversation using our Twitter handle at Climate One. Let us know what you think about powering America's future. This is Climate One, a conversation about powering America's future. Today, our host, Greg Dalton, looks at water and weather. Climate volatility is stirring up the water cycle, making some places wetter and others super dry. I'm looking at the variability that's predicted to come with climate change, longer, drier, more intense droughts. We can begin to see at least some of the implications in these weather patterns. We can't find solutions if we can't face the issues. And talking about climate change can be a conversation killer. But it's easy to talk about the weather. If you're having a conversation with people when they're contending with a drought or contending with a heat wave, a natural question comes up, like, why is this? Up next on Climate One. Climate One is changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Claire Schoen. These Climate One conversations, hosted by Greg Dalton, were recorded before a live audience at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan public forum in San Francisco. In this new era of climate change, some parts of the country are getting hotter and drier, while others are becoming colder and wetter. How do we adapt to this new normal in our cities and down on the farm? Let's start by looking at the impact of almonds and lawns in one thirsty state. California is grappling with the most severe drought on record, and the whole country In fact, the world is taking notice. People all over America consume California water every day, tucked into the grapes, lettuce, and nuts they eat. Californians sneer at agricultural's wasteful ways, but as much as 80% of residential water is poured into the yard. With aquifers being depleted and rivers being diverted, who should decide where dwindling supplies will go? To explore these ideas, Greg spoke with four people at the forefront of the water debate. Ellen Hannock is water director at PPIC, the Public Policy Institute of California. Felicia Marcus is chair of the California State Water Resources Control Board. Paul Wenger is president of the California Farm Bureau Federation, and Marguerite Young is a board member at the East Bay Municipal Water District. Here's our conversation about dealing with drought. Felicia Marcus. Droughts come and go. We're used to droughts in California. Is this one different, or is this just like another cycle? We ride it out, tighten our belts for a little while, and then we go on with our lives. Well, this is the biggest wake-up call in modern times. We lost our snowpack, which is a third of storage on average as it refills reservoirs and replenishes surface waters. We also have millions more people dependent on that water than the last time we had a big one in the 70s or in the 20s. And we've got more agricultural production dependent on every drop, and we have more endangered and threatened species than we've ever had before. So it's serious on just about every front you can think of. I need a drink after that. Okay. Um, <laughs> Ellen Hannock, uh, you survey California population attitudes. Where are Californians on this? Do they recognize the severity of the drought? I think one of the interesting, most interesting questions that gets asked in the PPIC statewide survey is a completely open-ended one that just asks people, what do you think the top issue is for California? And 39% said water or drought. It's just unheard of that Californians think that's such a a big deal. And so this is a a real chance for people to kind of heed the wake-up call and, and really make some changes that we need to make for the long term. Paul Wenger, farmers obviously live and die by water. They know it's a big deal. What's the impact on California's agricultural economy right now? Well, it's a huge impact. I'm a third generation in Modesto, just over the hill. Uh, Two of my sons farm with me. We watch the markets. The markets today are almonds and walnuts, and so we're almonds and walnuts because uh, today, as we're into a global marketplace, and we're seeing the middle class is growing at phenomenal rate around the world, they are beating a path to our door here in California. 
Marguerite Young, some people might say, well, I tightened my water use last time and I may have been punished for it. So tell us about how this time is different in terms of what you've learned to to try to drive conservation and not penalize people who do conserve. So now we have a regular three-tier rate system, the drought surcharge of 25% on top of that. And what we're telling people to do is use 35 gallons per person per day inside and then follow the outdoor watering restrictions. What that will mean is that some people don't need to do a thing. In fact, they're already doing better than that, far better than that. And some people will need to do much, much more. Let's talk about outdoor landscaping. A lot of the water use is outdoors. My family moved to California in the 60s and put a lot of effort into getting the little patch of lawn in the front yard because that's what people did. That meant the sort of middle-class lifestyle. Are those days over, lawns in California? Felicia Marcus. Well, it depends on the lawn. I think um, if you have a little lawn in the backyard so you can play ball with a kid and they can fall down, that's a functional lawn. But, you know, there are different kinds of lawns. You can put in native grasses that don't take as much water. And frankly, people routinely overwater. That's what we found, is that people are routinely overwatering their lawns, figuring more is better, and instead they're watering the three feet under their lawn. Folks use 30, 50, sometimes 80% of residential water use is outdoors. But obviously the permanent transformation, if folks aren't in love with their lawn, is a a better way to save. Let's talk about groundwater. There's been a lot of press lately, uh, Felicia Marcus, about overpumping of groundwater, sinking levels. uh, That's what's sort of drawing on our savings account for the future. It's different Mm -hmm. depending on where you are. I mean, there are some areas that have had in some ways a run on that as people have sunk deeper and deeper wells. And you were having essentially like an arms race with wells where you had the guy Mm -hmm. with the biggest pump winning and you were starting to see neighbor versus neighbor wells running dry. Paul Wenger, there is an arms race with uh, drilling in in the Central Valley. I'm not growing almonds just to dump them out in the heat. Right. We've been cut back 60%. We were allowed 16 inches of water this year, couldn't buy another inch. We're drilling our second well today because if I didn't have the wells, my crop will dry up. And We're talking about economic harm. I don't know anybody that's had to cut back watering their lawn and had to refinance their home. And last time I looked, nobody ate their lawns. (laughs) You could, Uh, though. Technically, (laughs) I suppose you could. We put a post on Facebook of almonds with little devil horns on them, and it got all sorts of attraction. People, why do people love to hate almonds? Felicia Marcus, you eat almonds? I like almonds a lot. And, you know, almonds have a very low water footprint for protein frankly, and it doesn't spoil. So just picking on a particular crop is taking a piece of things and not understanding the larger circle. Marguerite Young, tell us some success stories. Who's done a really good job of being smart on water in California? We've worked out at East Bay Mud to do a groundwater banking project with San Joaquin farmers. We'll be able to store water in wet years in the groundwater basin, recharging that overdrafted basin, and then having the ability to draw that water in dry years, increasing supply reliability for everybody, and reducing or eliminating our need to do any increase in our, uh, you know, our dam on the McCullamy <clears throat> River or otherwise, so increasing storage without building a dam. And there are plenty of innovative solutions like that to be had all over the state. Felicia Marcus. There's all kinds of innovative things you're doing to figure out how to let water flow that will help fish and then pick it up later. And there are urban areas in particular all over the state that have phenomenal plans to integrate flood control, water supply, water quality, use their groundwater basins, recycle their water so that they're more self-reliant, just as they have since the 70s. And then there are these partnerships between urban and ag and between fish and farmers and groups that, that are actually popping up all over, and we need to figure out how to encourage that. If you're just joining us, we're talking about almonds and lawns at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and my guests are Felicia Marcus, chair of the State Water Board, Paul Wenger, president of the California Farm Bureau Federation, Marguerite Young from East Bay Municipal Water District, and Ellen Hannock, director of the water policy at the Public Policy Institute of California. Marguerite Young, 10 years ago, a researcher at UC Santa Cruz, Lisa Sloan, predicted the drought that we're seeing now, and she also said it could get more severe. What do we know about the future and the climate connection? Her predictions are that we're looking at normal being 30% less than what normal is today. And if she's right, this is normal where we're at right now. So we've got to figure that out. 
I hope she's wrong. You know, there, there's lots of modeling out there, but I think the, you know, the feedback loops of the melting Arctic sea ice, the increase in tundra, um, if we're not getting ourselves on a two-degree trajectory, things are going to change pretty dramatically in California. Paul Winger, do your members make a climate connection? We know we have a footprint. We ought to do everything we can do to reduce the footprint. But I think there, again, is a great success story for California agriculture. 95% of all the processed tomato products produced and consumed in the United States are grown in fields in California, and a third of those consumed in the world. As you talk to the folks that make the tomato paste that is turned into that Chicago pizza pie, can you source your tomatoes from China or Korea or Mexico And they said yes, but we'd have to plant them on twice as many acres because we get more solids per the field. So now you start thinking about carbon footprint, driving tractors through the field, the amount of shipping of the product, uh, getting them to the processing plant, the amount of water that's used. If you want to think about climate footprint, we in California are doing it with the smallest carbon footprint of anybody else in the world. Felicia Marcus, as the top water cop in the state, what are you planning for (laughs) for a hot and dry 2016? (laughs) In some ways, I think conservation is the cheapest, fastest, smartest thing we can do to extend uh, resilience, particularly of our urban areas. We're going to keep doubling down on recycling. We've put out hundreds of millions of dollars in low-cost financing to really try and retrofit ourselves on conservation, recycling, stormwater capture, cleaning up contaminated groundwater basins, both for safe drinking water for the communities that don't have it, but also to be able to use those groundwater basins to store recycled water and captured stormwater, which will help make us more resilient. So we're, we're running on all cylinders now, and we would do more of the above. But given what we know is coming in two, three, four decades where we lose our snowpack, coupled with the fact that we know we'll have population growth, we're not going to export our children. And uh, I used to say eat our young, but people thought that was too crude. (laughs) (laughs) But in a climate-disrupted world, do you think that some people might might need to give up things that they've had for a very long time, all of us, and including farmers and some of the water rights they've had? Water rights are being given up. Farmers in Turlock and Modesto are being limited because of environmental restrictions. When you need to go get a permit, somebody says, oh, by the way, we want some of that water. The public didn't pay for that water. But through government, they extricated that water. Well, I I might take some exception to that. The public does own this public resource, which includes our fish and wildlife. But there's a tension because I think what Paul describes is a common feeling that folks have because they were there first, and all of a sudden we're trying to rebalance it for the common good, and that doesn't always feel right. But I think the dialogue of division doesn't really help us. We should have folks in urban California really valuing what we have as this incredible bounty that we can produce for ourselves and for the world. Figuring out how to help those farmers and figuring out how to do win-wins with the ecosystem and have everybody feel heard versus everybody going to their barricades is how we come together as Californians, which is something we can do. So let's go to our audience questions. We're talking about almonds and lawns at Climate One. Welcome. Uh, Carter Brooks, artist and philosopher of climate art. To what extent is allowing that everybody have their free choice a little bit like building houses in a flood zone? Are there things that should be done about collectively having aggregate limits or quotas, or are there other ideas around how to work with this problem of free choice? Ellen Hannick. Farmers need to know how much water is theirs to use, and part of the challenge that we've had is that our groundwater has not had that kind of regulation And so there's been very serious overdraft and and excess use in some regions, not all. And so with the new groundwater law, that's basically going to put in place a process for getting to sustainable use. And then farmers should make the business decision based on market conditions of what what crops to grow. Paul Winger. We have a cool summer and not a windy summer. We don't need as much. But what do we do? Get halfway through a growing season, we have a hot, windy summer, and we lose our crop? And it's funny when people from the environment say we got to have strict limits. Do you know what the environment does? The environment dictates my future. But then shouldn't you be planting less to deal with that freeboard, right? The future is going to be more uncertain and volatile. It's going to make it harder for farmers and regulators to do their job. Well, we need cushions everywhere. Greg Dalton has been talking about California's historic drought with Ellen Hannock of the Public Policy Institute of California, Felicia Marcus of the California State Water Resources Control Board, 
Paul Wenger, president of the California Farm Bureau Federation, and Marguerite Young from East Bay Municipal Water District. Subscribe to the Climate One podcast on our website, climateone.org. You're listening to Climate One. You're listening to Climate One with Greg Dalton. Most of the planet is covered by water, but only a tiny fraction is fresh water, which we can use to drink or grow food. We carry fresh water over mountains and through canals only to flush it down the toilet. And most of the water we use is hidden in the manufacturing of our products or growing food. But technologies and policies are devising ingenious ways to trim our water budget. Greg talked to two water warriors. Martha Davis is vice president of Earth Island Institute and also executive manager at the Inland Empire Utilities Agency. And Anna Miklak is a faculty member in global ecology at the Carnegie Institution for Science. Here's our conversation about reinventing water. Anna Miklak, let's begin with you. You wrote an article recently about the five big pools of fresh water in the world. Where is this fresh water and, and how is it changing with climate change? Only about 2.5% of the water on Earth is actually fresh water. The rest of it is saline. And of that 2.5%, about 2% is frozen. So only about half a percent overall is freshwater. And that's primarily, of course, in streams and lakes. But the vast majority of it is actually groundwater. So even though the total amount of water on Earth is, of course, huge, and it doesn't really increase or, or decrease, the amount of water that we can actually use year to year is a very small fraction of a very small fraction of that total. And any changes in where that water is what quality that water is and what form it takes has a huge impact on our ability to use it in a, in a manageable way. So how did Boston get all our water? <laughs> well, so one of the, the perhaps the ironies of the changing climate that we're living in is that dry areas tend to get drier and wet areas tend to get wetter. And also more of the precipitation tends to come in these extreme events. But of course, more water isn't always good either because then you might have issues with flooding and so on. Right. Global warming means it can get wet and cold in some places and and dry and hot in others. Martha Davis, the snowpack is big for water in the western United States. That's changing. The Colorado is changing. But tell us how that's affecting key parts of our supply in California. Well, let's take an example just from this year. In May, we had zero snowpack. We've never had that before. That's astonishing. What does that tell you? Warming temperatures are shifting the way in which California receives precipitation. So when you think about the reservoirs and the way in which we move water throughout the state, all of that is based on assumptions about snow being a major part of the storage system that releases the water slowly during the summer months and allows us to have that water come into our water supplies. If we don't have it in snowpack, it's coming earlier, it's coming much faster, and our systems are not really set up to take advantage of it. And then as you start looking at the variability that's predicted to come with climate change, more intense storms and wet periods, longer, drier, more intense droughts. And so we look just now at the weather that we've had in this this new century, right? It's only 15 years old. We've only had two wet years in that time period. The rest of it's been actually below normal weather. And so we can begin to see at least some of the implications in these weather patterns in this drought that we're experiencing now. If you extrapolate it out to the future and it's even more intense, mega droughts like what we've seen in Australia, we have an entirely different water scenario that we're going to have to deal with, both in terms of our, our, our own communities, agriculture and urban areas, but also what it means for the environment. I read in National Geographic the average American uses about 2,000 gallons, and a lot of their water use is embedded in other products. So, Martha Davis, we don't think about water connected to other issues. We measure water that we directly use and not the water we indirectly use. It's complicated because there are a lot of assumptions that are embedded in those water supplies. We have a lot of debate right now about how much water almonds use or how much water is in a cow and whether or not if you change your eating habits, you can help address some of the water shortages that are out there. 
I think that's a really important consideration because you have personal choice. And so I'm very interested in the choices we make in our homes and how we actually use water and having some sense of relationship for where the water comes from. Anna McLeck, how should people think more holistically about energy, food, and water? I, I think it's important to think about our, our entire water footprint in the same way that we've started thinking about our own carbon footprint. I mean, a pound of beef takes four times as much water as a pound of chicken, and a pound of chicken takes four times as much water as a pound of corn. And by choosing where we eat on the food chain, we are making choices about how much water we are personally responsible for in the same way as whether we choose to have a cactus garden or a green lawn in our house. And I think that, that it's true that because we have our water bill every month, it's much easier to be conscious of that aspect. But the, the food aspect is important as well, as is the energy aspect, whether it's due to the, the high water footprint of biofuels or whether it's due to how water is involved in making electricity or a variety of other aspects. And so what I would really love for people to become more conscious of as we're thinking about the water coming about out of our tap is all of the taps that were turned on throughout the state and throughout the country to make everything that we use day-to-day available to us. But there isn't a whole lot of labeling for people to make these kinds of choices, right? You don't really know the embedded water, so it's hard for consumers to make these kinds of choices. Martha Davis? I think that's completely true. We take water from Shasta Reservoir. It comes all the way down through the Sacramento River. It goes into the delta. There it gets pumped out of the delta it then flows through an aqueduct to the base of the Tehachapi's. It gets pumped up and over Tehachapi's, the equivalent energy usage as you have for desalination. It goes through a series of reservoirs. From those reservoirs, it gets pumped again. It gets treated. That's another energy-intensive element of the, of the chain. It comes to your house only to just run through the toilet, and then it went into the wastewater system where it got treated again at a high energy cost to then be released out into the ocean. And the choices which we make on the end use of these supplies have huge implications. Anna McLeck? The relationship works in both directions. You need a tremendous amount of energy to get water to where it needs to go or to desalinate it or to treat it. But at the same time, we also use an incredible amount of water to make energy, like water for irrigation for biofuels or hydroelectricity, but also in electrical power generation, water is an integral part of that process as well. So let's think about having a, a summer picnic and you want to have some guests over. Should you buy paper plates and cups or should you use the glassware and then think about washing them? Martha Davis? I wish there was a perfect answer to all of this. I tend to be in the favor of reusable things and I'm willing to take responsibility for washing them. And in a perfect world, that water would get recycled somewhere, exactly. right? I can recycle it in my yard, put it in the dog's dish, and then I water my favorite plant. Anna? In every situation, there's a decision to be made. In some cases, it can become overwhelming, paper cups versus washing a mug. This is why I think looking at our water use at a higher level can be helpful. Think of the municipal water use. Over half of the water, on average, that we use is outside water use. And so rather than necessarily having to worry about the small-scale water choices, we can have a big impact by making a small reduction in those big chunks of the overall pie of our water use, whether it be not watering lawns or through food choices or a variety of, of other things. Martha Davis, are you giving cash for grass? In yes, the we are. Um, um, it's certainly through the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California. They've invested over $500 million this last year in cash for grass programs. We were one of the earliest agencies to offer that type of a program. In our area, outdoor water use is 60 to 65% of our residential water usage. So we've very strongly encouraged people to switch to native plants or California-friendly plants. If I might, I want to give one example from my Mono Lake days. So I was executive director of the Mono Lake Committee in that campaign for Mono Lake. And I remember walking through West Los Angeles and coming across a leak, a leak that was so large, I could have kayaked three blocks without touching bottom. And I knew that water was coming from Mono Lake. This was simply a large institutional property that hadn't checked its water sprinklers. It was on a weekend. Nobody was paying attention. But that much water was running down the street. 
And I think even now in this drought, you can look at places and see where irrigation is going over into the streets, and that's creating water quality problems for receiving waters. We haven't quite made choices about the types of, of landscaping that could be much more efficient. And so I really think that there's a personal choice in this that connects us back to the places where this water comes from and makes us much more intimately involved in making choices that can help address climate change in the bigger picture. Martha Davis is board vice president of the Earth Island Institute. We also have with us today at Climate One Anna Miklak from the Carnegie Institution for Science. Let's talk about what climate change may bring us, Martha Davis, in the form of severe storms. What's that going to mean for the state water system? We're hoping that we get more rain in this drought. But what we're worried about is the intensity of the storms and the volume of the flow that then has the capacity to swamp our existing flood control systems. And with that comes a lot of water quality problems in addition to the infrastructure damage. And then from the water supply side, you know, we've tried to very carefully build our systems to capture the water up in the mountains, but when we come to our urban areas, we've actually made the mistake of trying to shoot the water as fast as we can out to the ocean. And so you get two types of problems. You're losing the water supply that you would normally capture from the mountains. You get these intense flooding events, and then in our urban areas, we're just shedding the water as fast as we can towards the ocean. So it's a, it's a big mess, and it's a lot of infrastructure that's going to have to be modified over the years if these more intense storms are what we're in for. And warming water, we've heard about the Great Lakes affected by algal blooms. What's that going to do to freshwater supplies, Anna? So the Great Lakes are an interesting case study because they've, they have had issues with water quality for decades now. Last year, the Toledo water supply was shut down completely for two or three days because toxins were found in the water supply originating from the bloom of this cyanobacterium. And what's happening in the Great Lakes is two things in combination. So you have this intense agricultural use with increasing use of corn, which takes a lot of fertilizer, so a lot of nutrients. And at the same time, you have more of these intense storms that are flushing those nutrients into the water and feeding these algal blooms. And then in other years, you might have very dry drought conditions, and that's leading to increased dead zones in the lake. And so all of these systems are changing at the same time. And so you have these local land management patterns that are interacting with global-scale climate change patterns. And ultimately, we're just seeing conditions that are fundamentally different from what we've seen before, both in terms of water quantity and also in terms of water quality. Is there anywhere that has real water security? If we want to think about buy a little land somewhere, uh, Martha Davis, where, where would we go? I'd stay here in California. I don't think the question is whether or not we're going to have rain and a water supply. It's a choice about how we manage our way through these systems. My agency is thinking about it in terms of not reliability, but resiliency. It's the ability to treat and reuse water using recycled water. We're going to have discussions about recycled water going to what we call direct potable reuse. We're talking about desal. How do we take advantage of the wet years when they come? How do we store water in different places in anticipation of significant droughts. But none of these supplies by themselves is a silver bullet, just in the same way that conservation is not a silver bullet. It's the way in which they fit together and how we do a better job of managing all of those things in combination. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Hi, I'm Joseph Rizzi with Natural Desalination. Um, I have kept trying to uh, propose being able to save or, or add 10 to 40 million acre feet of water just by simply putting some salinity gates across Benicia and allowing one area to be open for fish and pollution and everything else to flush back and forth. But I can't seem to be able to find anybody who will listen. I'm setting you a gift here. 10 million acre feet in a dry year, 40 million acre feet in a wet year is possible, according to DWR's own statistics. But how do you get somebody to listen to you? Thank you. Martha Davis, is there some intransigence at the state level? I, I think one of the challenges we always have is how do we deal with new ideas that are coming at us, particularly in government. And once a commitment has been made to a certain pathway, it does make it harder to take new innovative ideas and get them vetted in such a way you could figure out, do they work? 
how might they be incorporated into um, the planning process that is already underway by the Department of Water Resources. So unfortunately, I think the answer is not one that you want to hear, which is you have to keep knocking on the doors and trying to get opportunities to present the concepts and see if it could be incorporated into a lot of the feasibility evaluations that have been going on in the Delta. Get a hold of Jerry Brown one day. He might just go for it. But those big risk-averse institutions are a uh, tough sell. Welcome to Climate One. Hi, my name is Deborah Moore, and I worked at Environmental Defense Fund quite a while ago, and I was also on something called the World Commission on Dams. And my question is around flexibility. I love to hear that you're interested in resilience and pursuing that. And so what's your perspective on things like water pricing, subsidies, and water marketing, where we could build in flexibility and give other kinds of signals to people around a scarce, precious okay. resource? Anna McLack? Water sustainability is not just about moving somewhere where there's more water, but really thinking about putting together a set of solutions that makes it possible for people to live within the context of how much water is available. And it's not going to be a one-size-fits-all solution. You need a whole host of tools and fitting them all together in a way that really matches the local circumstances. So I think all options should be on the table. And the amount of water available may change from year right. to year in ways right. that we're not used That's to. Right. Let's have our next question. Welcome. Hi. I think that a lot of these um, conversations that we're having are really good and ne have needed to happen for a long time. And my question to you is, in your experience, have places that have experienced severe droughts and started these conversations maintained them if a heavy rain year or a set of heavy rain years came along afterward? Or is this going to go away? If El Nino comes, we're back to um, cushy lawns, big lush lawns. I, Martha I, Davis? I think there's no question. There's a fear that we'll go back to business as usual as if this didn't make a difference. But I don't think that's really going to happen. The depth of this drought and how dramatically it's impacted all areas of the state makes it a game changer. The fact that we can look at other countries that have had really intense droughts and had to shift dramatically their infrastructure, that's a game changer too. We've always seen strong conservation following a drought. And over the years, there's always been a little bit going back up again in terms of demand. But the level of, of water usage, at least in the urban areas, has always been lower than, than what it was before the drought. So if you look at the 77 drought and you look at the 88 through 94 drought and you look at the, you know, the 2008, 2010 drought and now the one that we're currently in, you can actually track in water agencies how the amount of water use has dropped after each drought and stayed lower. Last question. On the subject of ideas and solutions here, I'm wondering more and more what role do you see the startup community and technology having in uh, presenting solutions and helping to solve some of the water problems? Startups and innovation, Anna McClack? I think one of the most interesting ideas that, that I've heard about is this idea of making the water bills more transparent to the people who are actually receiving them. So enabling people to be more consciously aware of the water that they're using, in that case, within the home, but more broadly, similar things are, are possible. I think if you, if you stop the average person on the street and you ask them, how much water did you personally use in the last week, not just in your home, but overall, people might be off by an order of magnitude. And so I think there's the, this information to consumer aspect is something that I'm personally very interested in, and, and I'm sure there are many others as well. Martha Davis of the Earth Island Institute and Anna Miklak of the Carnegie Institution for Science have been discussing the wise use of water on a hot planet. We'd like to know what you're doing to use water smarter. Let us know on Twitter. Our handle is at Climate One. Climate disruption is whipping up the weather. Freezing snowstorms in one corner of the country can coincide with megafires in another. But with all eyes on the skies, wild weather can serve as a teachable moment, an opportunity to talk about the science and politics of climate change and about strategies for addressing it. Greg Dalton did just this with three people who've been watching the weather vane. Louise Bedsworth is Deputy Director at Governor Brown's Office of Planning and Research. 
Hunter Cutting is Director of Strategic Communications at Climate Nexus, a nonprofit communications firm focused on climate. And Catherine Sullivan is Administrator of NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Dr. Sullivan was one of the first women astronauts and the first American woman to walk in space. Here's our conversation about weather whiplash. Kathy Sullivan, let's look back at the last, say, 10 years or so of weather. We know that 2014 was the hottest year on record. Put us in perspective. What's going on with all this really hot and really cold? The chemistry of the atmosphere is clearly changing. Carbon dioxide is rising. That's been an actual physical measurement. The physics of what that will result in are very clear, and they've been known for 60 or 70 years. Carbon dioxide is one of the heat-trapping gases. So the atmosphere is getting warmer. And those physics are pretty clear, too. When you put more heat in the atmosphere, you see more extreme weather. There are more frequent events, and there are more intense events. And indeed, the statistics show that. So the patterns we've been used to don't match up anymore with what's the new normal in this hotter-than-before atmosphere. And you're one of the few Americans who've actually been up in that atmosphere. You know, down here walking around on the dirt, we tend to see the sky is immense. The atmosphere seems huge. When you get even a couple hundred miles away and look back at the planet, you get a really different sense of proportion. And the atmosphere that everything alive on Earth depends upon looks a lot more like the fuzz on a tennis ball than some thick rind on a grapefruit or something. So, you know, I got a very different sense of uh, the, the thin little membrane of air that envelops this ball of dirt and makes it habitable. And Hunter Cutting, is weird weather, is that a teachable moment when something happens unusual, their garden blossoms differently, or there's some unusual weather? Does that cause people to say, hmm, global warming is happening, or is it just like, yeah, not so much? Well, it, it seems to be. Weather is something that everybody contends with. And so when you try to have a conversation with people about global warming in the abstract, you're just not going to get a lot of traction. But if you're having a conversation with people when they're contending with a drought or contending with a heat wave, a natural question comes up like, why is this? You know, why is this the third once in 500 year storm we're having on, on the east coast of the United States within 10 years? So they, they do seem to be teachable moments. And, and some of the polling data out there suggests that as well on the meteorologists, the TV meteorologists, they often don't attribute climate to it. Kathy Sullivan, why is that? Is that because climate is politically controversial? We tried to get some meteorologists to join this program. Uh, even in San Francisco, we couldn't find one. This is actually a topic of frequent conversation in the American Meteorological Society, which is the big gathering of all of us that do weather or are interested in weather. I think the main hypothesis among the AMS folks is that since your role as a TV weathercaster is to hold viewer loyalty, if you're broadcasting to a more conservative or skeptical viewership, you're going to softball uh, the science. Undercutting. I think it's just actually being risk-averse, right? Yep. But um, one of the things that's interesting is that the broadcast meteorologists that are getting out there and are making connection are finding actually that it's drawing in viewers. So we have a fantastic meteorologist in Denver who's showing that, a fantastic meteorologist in Atlanta, Georgia. So there's clearly some meteorologists who are showing their station managers, wait a minute, I'm drawing in an audience by making the connection. So it, it can work both ways. One of the biggest events, severe weather events in California recently was the Rim Fire. You know, the, mm -hmm. the electricity in San Francisco was at risk, a lot of damage. Louise Bedsworth, what has California learned and how is it affecting the people still up there? The Rim Fire happened in 2013. It started right before Labor Day weekend um, and it burned over 250,000 acres. It's the third largest wildfire in the state. It burned for two months, so you can imagine the impacts from that were tremendous in terms of loss to tourism and recreation businesses up in the region right near Yosemite National Park. Smoke impacts were felt as far away as Montana. So the event itself was amazingly damaging to the economy and the environment up there. And so we've been working very closely with the community up in Tuolumne County where the fire occurred. Much of the land that burned was owned by the U.S. Forest Service and National Park Service. So how do we build a partnership that can create economic resilience in that community, help their businesses withstand those types of events, can help us manage our forests in a more sustainable way to minimize the risk of the large destructive fires that can also help us capture more water in our watersheds, prevent downstream impacts. 
um, putting into action things we've known we'd need to do for decades. People have known we need to manage our forests in certain ways to maximize the benefits that we have received from them, particularly in California, water, critical. You know, and so what we're actually doing now is let's figure out how we do this, working with our private companies, with local businesses, with the Forest Service, the Park Service, the California Department of Forestry and Fire Protection, California Environmental Protection Agency, the Resources Agency, the local government. I mean, you name it, people are involved and engaged. And one of the consequences is it's hard for homeowners to get property insurance up there. The insurance industry is starting to sort of sound the alarm on, on the risk of living the American dream if it means a nice cabin in the woods. The Rim Fire happened all up and down the Sierra Nevada in California. Just the next year in 2014, we had the King Fire. wasn't as large, but incredibly destructive fire. And insurance is a huge problem in all of those communities of how do we take on that risk. There's programs in place that are helping homeowners to take action to build defensible space, to build in fire-safe ways, to assist people who don't have the resources to do it themselves, but it's an ongoing challenge. Kathy Sullivan, the number of billion-dollar severe weather events has increased. There's more property. It's worth more. But how do we know that there's more economic impact from severe weather? Everything about the physics of a warming atmosphere tell us we should be expecting to see more events and more extreme events. And you know, things like the Rim Fire, our Forest Service colleagues, they're funded and equipped to deal with a certain amount of wildfire per year, and we're seeing now like seven times that sort of acreage burning fairly consistently. So that swamps the response capability of the federal government, and we're struggling to figure out how to bring them into our planning and our preparation and our insurance calculations. Great. More to worry about. Aren't you glad you came today? (laughs) Um, um, Our guests today are Kathy Sullivan, the administrator of NOAA, Hunter Cutting with Climate Nexus, and Louise Bedsworth is an advisor to California Governor Jerry Brown. I would like to talk about migration. Kathy Sullivan, do we know how weather patterns may affect migration? I interviewed someone who used to work at the Center for Disease Control. He predicted that this migration we've seen to the Sun Belt in recent decades would be reversed as Americans move towards cooler temperatures. Is that something that's on your radar at NOAA? You know, a number of migration patterns are on, let me say, the national radar screen in this regard. Disease patterns are migrating. Hay fever seasons have already expanded by up to 26 days through the central and northern tier and up into the Canadian provinces. Anyone who's a gardener has watched the plant hardiness zones march north year over year as the annual planting guides came out. Species that are arriving sooner, leaving later, shortened seasons, that's being observed all around the globe. Human migrations are also being observed and are very much a concern of national security officials in many, many, many countries. The unrest we're seeing in Syria and the Middle East is at least in part, I emphasize at least in part, fostered or catalyzed by climate change. You have severe drought for a number of years in a rural area with increasing food security, a flood of people to cities, cities not able to handle them and provide the basic security and and well-being, weak government responses, erosion of confidence. It's a slow unraveling and climate Drought is not the only factor, but it contributes to that. Closer to home, American taxpayers paid about $60 billion after Hurricane Sandy. I've interviewed a couple of governors who said that that cannot continue indefinitely. At some point, Uncle Sam's not going to be able to bail out states after some really big storms. Kathy Sullivan, can you anticipate these things getting so big that they break the bank? More than 40% of the global population and a similar number of Americans live in our coastal zones. So there's more of us at risk, there's more built infrastructure, there's more economic infrastructure at risk. I think the current number for the United States is something like $39 trillion of asset value in coastal zones. A Sandy, a Katrina, moving through the inopportune swath of our coastal zone could really wipe out, I mean, Andrew wiped out insurance companies in Florida. So the reinsurance companies, the guys that insure the insurance companies, They're among the folks really raising the warning signs here and trying to find ways to push on governments to price this risk more accurately and take account of it. Hunter Cunning, bring us out of this funk. What's the upside? (laughs) (laughs) It's, It's actually not a scientific problem. We're actually pretty clear what causes global warming. And what I think is very interesting that's also sort of become very clear in the last five years or so, it's not an economic problem. In many places in this country, solar power is already cost-competitive. 
um, at the utility scale level. And it's cheaper if you put it on your rooftop. What we're really talking about is moving our economy from a fossil fuel economy to a renewable energy economy. But changing the direction of those investments is a huge political challenge. And it can change on a dime. I can remember it was just unthinkable that we would elect uh, an African-American as president. It just wasn't even politically viable. And that happened overnight. And so I think our ability to change the politics, I'm very confident about. And I feel a lot more confident in our ability to do that than to solve scientific mysteries or overcome <laughs> huge economic challenges. Kathy Sullivan, do you see the prospect for changing the politics on climate in Washington? I do think over time it will change. I think the mounting events, mounting evidence, more and more clamor from more and more people who are experiencing changes in their home environment, in their business, and are hungry for information about what's coming ahead. One of the things that we might need to do to rise to this climate opportunity is to get more women involved in science, technology, engineering, math. So I'd like to ask Louise Bedsworth how to get more women in science to work on solutions to these things. When I was at MIT and one-third of my class was women, in environmental engineering, 50% of us were women. I take that as a good sign that we're moving in the right direction. Kathy Sullivan? We need a good scientific cadre in this country. But to move this needle, we really need a wider range of participation of science-attuned and science-informed people in the policy and the economic and the business arena as well. You're not going to solve this by enriching you know, the ghetto of science. You're going to solve this by changing the national equation on multiple fronts. And yet when it comes to complex climate science or evolution, a lot of the country doesn't believe in it. Changing the investments in the direction that Hunter has said is going to be hugely disruptive to current patterns of investment, to current incumbents, to current settled things. We should not minimize how hard it is for human beings to go through creative destruction. And you love it when you're the innovator and you don't like it when you're on the the side of the curve that's being chewed up. So I think part of it is my best way to not have to buy into the conversation that I'm going to have to radically change is to say it isn't true. You can't prove it enough that you have a basis for affecting my livelihood. It's a natural protective instinct. I don't believe that high cholesterol is bad because I like bacon and I'm just going to stick with (laughs) my bacon. That's right. I would also say I think California has a very good story in terms of the success you can have on cleaning the environment. We have a strong economy and very low emissions per unit of GDP in California. And so I think there are very positive stories that you can tell, and it doesn't have to be an either-or. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome. I have a question about adaptation versus mitigation. I know we have to adapt, but is it somewhat misleading to imagine that we can? How much climate change is already baked into the equation, and can we really adapt? Maybe it's akin to the duck and cover of the early Cold War to tell people that we can adapt. Kathy Sullivan. I wouldn't relegate it to duck and cover status because I think adapting in the sense of learning how to make our designs, our societies more resilient, better able to withstand disruptions, has good prospects. So I I think it is valid to work on adaptation. And Hunter Cutting, you think that humans are very adaptive and we're good at this. We are good at change. It's one of the signature characteristics of our species. It's definitely part of the American fabric and the culture. So I think, you know, It's a bit of a balancing act, right? We're going to have to mitigate. We're going to have to reduce emissions to avoid the catastrophic changes. And and they're catastrophic. The temperature increase that we will see may not sound like much, like 8 degrees may not sound like much, but that's about the amount of temperature change that we saw that ended the last ice age and would have crocodiles live in the Arctic. I mean, so we we really don't want to go there. You know, two degrees of temperature change, we can adapt to that much. People argue about it, but I think it's it's, it's doable. So I think we have to do both. We have to mitigate to avoid the catastrophic and adapt to what we can avoid. Adaptation is just going to be part of what we do now going forward in the future. Louise Bedsworth. There are a lot of things you can do that do both, in particular water efficiency, energy efficiency, a lot of natural lands management, All of these activities don't fall into one column or the other, and I think really focusing on trying to do these ones that'll do both is really important. What is the serenity prayer? Uh, Change the things we can and accept the things we can't and the wisdom to know the difference? Yep. Let's go to our next question. This is Betty Dyke. How to make sense of our wacky weather, right? 
So our Center for Spiritual Development thinks that God is sending fire, water, wind, and storm to cleanse the environmental degradation. Kathy Sullivan, some people think that the rapture is coming, that this is actually a sign of good times. It's an interesting view. (laughs) As we wrap up here, we're going to end by asking each of you, what gives you hope? Hunter Cutting. I want to put solar panels on my house, and it's cheap. So if I'm going to take some power and put the panels on my roof and produce my own power, maybe that'll help change the politics around the energy sector you want to as stick well. it to the utility, okay. <laughs> Kathy Sullivan, what gives you hope? There are really easy victories out there. Uh, personal energy use efficiency is a really easy victory. There's a lot of low-hanging fruit, easy to gain, good practical payback terms, uh, things like that. And um, what gives me hope? The passion so many people have for Earth and preserving it and the ingenuity of humankind. In terms of hope, I would say there's just amazing things happening in almost every community. So many cool things happening, and I think just the people that are working on this topic have great ideas and a lot of enthusiasm, so that gives me hope. Greg Dalton has been talking about the weather with Louise Bedsworth, Deputy Director at Governor Brown's Office of Planning and Research. Hunter Cutting, Director of Strategic Communications at Climate Nexus, and Catherine Sullivan, Administrator of NOAA. Free podcasts of all our Climate One conversations are available on our website at climateone.org. You'll also find video clips, photos, and more. Please join us next time for another Climate One discussion about powering America's future. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California. Greg Dalton is our executive producer and host. Jane Ann Chen is the producer. Alyssa Kerr is the assistant producer. The audio engineers are John Rieger and Dan Gunning. I'm Claire Schoen, the editor. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is presented in association with KQED Public Radio.